Hey, nonprofit lowdown fans. Great news. I've just opened up my fundraising accelerator for the main June session. This accelerator is aimed at executive directors or senior level development directors of budgets under 2 million who want to establish a major donor giving program and need support and guidance to get started. I think major donors are the way to go in 2021, so learn strategies and tactics to take your fundraising to the next level. This program is a combination of great content, intensive coaching, and peer learning. And we also have a ton of fun. I'm capping the cohort at 30 people on a rolling basis, so apply today at riawong.com. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Ria Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong with you once again on Nonprofit Lowdown. So today I'm really excited to welcome my guests, Brian Joseph and Lizzie Honan of RevGen. And today we are going to be talking all about sales and revenue generating strategies for nonprofit, which is not often something that we talk about. So Brian Joseph is the co-founder and CEO of RevGen. Lizzie Honan is the regional director of New York for RevGen and also has a long history in philanthropy and nonprofit. So we're gonna talk about that. So welcome to both of you. Great to be here. I'm excited because this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I'm all about that money. So Brian, as a CEO, tell me a little bit about RevGen and why you started this company. Oh, that's a great question. Actually, I'm going to flip it and let Lizzie start because I think listening to her story, why she joined us is great. And then it'll actually backfill into why I started this because it's helping serve and empower the change makers to solve some of their biggest challenges, which are often around money. So Lizzie, you want to kick us off? Yeah, for sure. As Brian just mentioned, I don't want to bury RevGen's goal and mission is to empower nonprofit leaders with tools and resources and solutions to tackle the greatest challenges. And often those challenges are around revenue. And Brian will get into sort of the backstory and his vision for how we came to be. But I think one of the things that makes RevGen really appealing to me or did before I started and continues to is that RevGen's focus is really on the full leader, the whole leader. So not just tackling your revenue challenge, but also you can't isolate that entirely. And so really looking at the whole leader and we'll get into exactly how we do that in a moment. What drew me to RevGen, so I, for about 13 or so years was, as, as Rhea was mentioning, running strategic growth and development for some amazing local New York organizations. And I pivoted over to RevGen and I had a couple of key moments where I realized that this is a great move for me in my career, one of which was the idea of bringing community together, the development focus of RevGen and really focusing on the, the people who are doing the work and trying to look through different lenses, look through different frameworks to tackle perpetual problems of how we build our financial structures, how we keep it sustainable and all of that. So that was really great for me. And I think another key selling point to me was actually talking to a couple of leaders who've gone through RevGen's programs and said they were really impactful and they were trusted people in my life. So I was excited to join and I was also curious. I read about RevGen, I read about it and I was like, well, what is it? What's the magic? What is RevGen doing? And I'd say the the intentionality behind being responsive and receptive and creating really smart solutions for the nonprofit sector with the input from the sector. So we look at revenue capacity and how one can build that out for your whole organization and your team. And we do that in our fuel workshop series. 
And then our squared peer groups are particular calling to me as someone who's tried to start my own peer groups in development, tried to keep the momentum of those going and find that it's hard to keep those up. It's hard to keep the time commitment there, the momentum, the facilitation going. And so RevGen provides that external support to keep the conversations going. And I think the other piece of the peer groups that is truly unique is in contrast to peer groups that I've been in before, where you kind of come into a room with 50 leaders all in development and the topic du jour is really trying to hit the common denominator, you may not get that deep dive into what you're, you specifically are struggling with. And I think our peer groups allow for that. So. so to go back to you, Brian, I mean, I know that your background is both in for-profit and nonprofit and specifically around sales. So I'm just curious if that led to the founding of RepGen. It did, Rhea. I mean, so I think to the question of why do we start RevGen, right? There's a lot of reasons why, but so my background did come out of the for-profit world and I was very fortunate in my life to have a uh, mentor who took an interest in me and his secret sauce of 50 plus years in business was building and scaling national sales organizations. And he used to tell me building the system is different than operating the system. And when you look at the for-profit world, Sales Benchmarking Index has 11,000 of the largest companies in their database, and 7% of those CEOs of those companies have sales experience. So this is an issue across the board. And then when you come into the nonprofit sector, when I was exposed to the nonprofit sector and started working here, I would sit down with leadership teams, and we talk about their programmatic challenges, and they're literally, again, the change makers trying to solve some of society's most entrenched problems. And you can just flip on the evening news and see all the things and the the help that we need. And I believe that empowering these change makers to do what they do so well is what we need to do. But when you sit down with the the, the leadership teams at nonprofits, oftentimes I would ask, what's keeping you up at night? And it would always come back to revenue. It was always those challenges. And you can look at the data, then you're starting to do some search, right? For the top five challenges are revenue related. So when we saw that and we started to look around and we said, wow, I think this is something that we could really help solve. And could we teach nonprofit leadership teams how to approach revenue generation differently so we could actually start to address some of the root causes versus the symptoms of what they're dealing with? So a lot of it just had to do with unique set of skill sets that I happen to have and then the passion for this for this sector and the change makers of helping them solve some of their biggest challenges, which is around revenue generation. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been in the nonprofit sector. I you know, consult around this and obviously fundraising and revenue generation is the number one issue that everyone solves because at the end of the day, you can have all the passion in the world, but if you can't pay the bills, you can't do the work. So I want to dig in a little bit because I know that RevGen focuses on revenue generation that could be philanthropic, but also could be fee-for-service. I want to dig into the fee-for-service because I think that's a pretty unique idea. So in the nonprofit sector, I think we generally, when we think about revenue generation, we think about grants, we think about individual giving and so forth. We don't often necessarily think about fee-for-service. So can you tell us, and Lizzie, Brian, has that shift been a revolutionary one for nonprofits? I'll start by just sort of framing up RevGen. We're often, the misconception I think a little bit is we use the term revenue and we really truly mean that agnostically, like any dollar that comes in the door. So when we work with organizations or when we have our cohorts, we're looking at 
what makes up your revenue model and what do you need or want it to make up in the future? And one of those elements, it could be grants, it could be foundations, or it can be fee for service. And that's an area where we're really looking to delve into and offer training and support as that even in the for-profit side of the house, sort of having those frameworks around sales trainings is difficult. So it's, I think there's need for tools and structure and development in general. And Brian can maybe offer up some of our more in-depth answers to the fee-for-service model, but I think it's really looking at what's right for the organization and getting in, and if fee-for-service is right, which it can be for many, then how does one do that? Yeah, I think to build on that, Rhea, is is really, I think, fee-for-service for the organizations that it makes sense is a great tool for them, right? It all of a sudden ties them into a, a stream of revenue that's not restricted. It tends to be market-driven, so the customers and what they need and solving something that was not being solved otherwise. But there's also challenges with that. So when you think about a fee-for-service component, oftentimes we're, as nonprofits, we're selling a product that doesn't necessarily, the price that we can charge in the marketplace doesn't necessarily cover full cost. When we don't think about the consequences of every time I make a sale, I actually flip a fundraising dollar amount over to my fundraising team that then has to be filled. So it's how do we balance the fee for service aspect with the overall organizational strategy? And I think that's what Lizzie's talking about, just making sure that it aligns because not all organizations, not all nonprofits can have a fee for service component, but the ones that do want to, how do we look at that? How do we give them the best chance of success? How do they explore and how do they do that effectively? I think it's something that we have been working on and continue to work on. And, and we often talk about symptoms versus root causes of revenue challenges. Again, agnostically on revenue, whether it's philanthropic, fever service or, or government and really helping leaderships under, leadership teams understand and unpack what they're trying to do. But I'm happy to talk more about a fee-for-service model that we have and kind of walking teams through that, if that would be beneficial. Yeah, before we get there, I just want to kind of level set here because for those of us who are not familiar, when I think fee-for-service, I'm thinking everything from selling Girl Scout cookies to maybe an organization might have a consulting side of their business that they bring in revenue. Is that what you mean when you say fee-for-service? Yeah, it could be anything that they're offering. For me on fee-for-service, I think of anything where we're providing a product or a service that a customer pays for. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the end customer. So maybe it's I have an early education product I sell to the schools to get to the end students that I want to get to is Title I and into Title I schools, et cetera. But is there somebody who pays the organization for some type of product or service that we're helping deliver? So there's a bunch of different ways, you know, Girl Scout cookies, et cetera, that fit into the overall revenue model and revenue strategy, which I think is a bigger question because we do hear from a lot of organizations sometimes board member, donor, somebody has something that's like, hey, this would be a fee-for-service component. And a simplistic example would be opening up an ice cream shop when you're an early education organization, how does that fit into the overall programmatic strategy? Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. So it's really making those hard choices of, should we do this? What are the resources we have? And if it does fit in, then how do we do that and make it effective and give us the best chance of success? Okay, well, let's dig into this because I know there are probably lots of folks who have questions. How do you, as an organization, whether or not fee-for-service is the right move for you? This is a great question. I think this is where we'll get into some of the model that we're just now starting to develop. Let me just share, first of all, we look at revenue. I use a house model. Typically, I want leadership teams to think about the foundation of the house, which focuses on five elements. I'm going to touch on these because these elements make up a lot of how I answer that question. Should I do this? But our house framework that we use 
to focus leadership teams on root causes is really the roof of the house tends to be what most solutions in the nonprofit space are focused on, which is sales skills, fundraising skills, frontline day-to-day. How do I go out, get that customer, engage that donor? The walls of the house tend to be what we would call the, the management side of things. So how do I actually manage my sales team? How do I manage my fundraisers? What reporting systems should I use, et cetera? But the foundation is where we make decisions, right? The foundation is where we want the board and the C-suite really focused on, which is five core elements. First of all is revenue model. Where's your money coming from today? Where do you want it to come from? I'll come back to that when I get into the sales model. Second would then be once I make those decisions, what's my revenue strategy to actually achieve that, right? Because a fee-for-service revenue strategy is going to be much different than a major gifts revenue strategy, which is different than an event strategy. When I move through that, now all of a sudden, it's what's my organizational design? right? Who's going to wake up thinking about those individual revenue streams? My major gifts officer doesn't necessarily mean that it should be the person in charge of my fee-for-service component. Different skill sets, different needs, right? Then it goes into resource allocation. Resource allocation is not all dollars are created equal. What it costs me to raise a dollar through fundraising is going to be different than what my gross margin is, what it costs me to get a dollar in from a fee-for-service component. And how do I understand that? And then how do I allocate those to the cost, the good or service, or the program? my operational team, because I still got to pay for HR, things like that. And then my revenue team, right? Whether that be fundraising or a sales component. And then last but not least, how do I actually build an organization that embraces a revenue culture where we talk about, we celebrate both fundraising, sales, et cetera. So it's included in an ongoing conversation. It's not a one and done. This is something that we should work as intentionally with as we do our program and everything else, specifically to the fee-for-service component. So your question of how do I make that decision? There's no magic wand. There's no one answer, right? This is one of the more complicated things that an organization has to experiment with because how does this decision to do a fee-for-service component fit into, again, the overall strategy? And if there is line of sight, then what do we do? So we started to develop out something that we call our infinity sales model. And it's made up of two components. Component one is the right side of the the model, which is really the external component, sort of that question. Typically what happens is internal, we have an idea. We have an idea about how somebody be willing to pay for our product or service, even as a nonprofit. Maybe we're having, again, staying with education. Maybe a school is starting to ask us, hey, we would pay for this. Could you help us design this? This is a variation of what you already do, or it's a way of scale. We have a very heavy fee for, we have a very heavy uh, direct service model. Now we want to do an indirect service model. Can we put a price on that to help us scale to do things? But with that ideation and assumptions, I think we need to go through a process of what is the product? How does it fit to our strategy? There's all kinds of discussion that needs to take place. Step two of that external component would be then what's the market analysis? Who else in the marketplace is offering a, a product or service? Who am I competing with? Right? If all of a sudden I'm going to move as a nonprofit into offering a product or service into the marketplace, I need to realize there may be other for-profit actors in the world. There may be other nonprofit actors. There may be other solutions that what I'm trying to solve for with this product or service is being answered with something else. But what is that market analysis that I could actually do to figure out what's the size and scope of the market? What's the geography look like? Where am I going to work? Then that leads into the third element, which is really pricing and positioning. Right? Our product or service, are we going to be a low-cost provider? and compete with there? We're going to be a high service provider. What's that going to look like? Again, geographically, what am I positioning going to be? Am I selling to school districts? Am I selling to principals? Where am I going to go? I think once we go through the external component, and we've done some of that homework, and it doesn't have to be exhaustive. I think it just takes some time, some focus, and some concentration and clear decision-making by the leadership team. Then you really have that decision point. 
should we do this or should we not? And I think this is often where we have to be devil's advocate, but it's a go, no go decision. If it's a no go, maybe we go back into that side of the infinity sales model where it's back to the ideation assumptions. Maybe it's more market analysis, more pricing and positioning, or maybe it's just, this is a bad idea. We don't want to do it at all. But if it's a go decision, now we got all the internal side that, that goes into work. And that starts with back to our revenue house model. We have all the same questions, right? Okay. What's the pricing going to look like? How much does it cost us for this product to deliver it? What's our gross margin going to be? What's our org design going to be like, et cetera. Then we move into sales management. Who's actually going to run the sales team? Who's What kind of sales team do we need? Is this going to be something that we're going to use internally, have full-time people? Is it an outbound call center? Is it an in-person sales rep? What does the sales structure and sales team need to look like? So from a management and team standpoint, what are the activities, et cetera, we need to, to think about? Then we go into the marketing aspect. What's our marketing branding positioning going to be? What do we need to have for language? How do we make sure that's united? And then I think what we often lose sight of is what's the customer experience, right? When they engage with our organization from a sales standpoint, is the role of the salesperson to sell the organization, get them engaged, and then we hand it over to program and operations? Or is a salesperson supposed to stay involved through that customer experience? And then what's the customer journey? And I think this is the point that often gets lost on too. So I talk to a lot of nonprofits at times, especially when they're experimenting with fee-for-service, that'll be like, we have what we think could be a, what we'd call a loss leader, a low-priced option that would start to serve a need. And if they get a flavor for what we do, then they would buy up into our more expensive products or services, direct service, et cetera. Well, we need to walk through that because if we're not generating a return for the low-cost service, we need to make some assumptions of the customer journey. How many of them do we expect to actually buy up to our higher price option? Or quite frankly, in the nonprofit sector, sometimes it's the inverse of that. We start with an expensive fee-for-service component, and we actually want our customers to buy less expensive products as we try to scale. So there's a lot of decisions, but we could actually break this down into steps. So we started to design this Infinity Sales model to do exactly this, to help our nonprofit leaders see there's a process that you can go through to start to make some decisions, but it's not a one and done. And that's what I always, always, always stress. This is not a, we go through the exercise and great, now we can put it on the shelf and we're, we're done forever. We don't have to think right. about it. So Brian, I'm just going to unpack a bunch of stuff that you just dropped there. So I really want to lift up a couple of things. Number one is the amount of time and resources that it will take on the front end to make a decision about this. And then number two, and I think this is somewhat similar to how people might think about fundraising too, which is you have to test the idea, like just having the idea and rolling it out doesn't mean that money is going to come out in the door automatically. So let's talk first about the resource thing, because aside from the actual time resource of thinking about the idea, I expect that you're going to have to invest some money in a sales manager or something of that nature. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that pre-COVID, we talked a lot about how fee-for-service dollars were great, right? It's a way for us to deliver it. We, again, it's unrestricted dollars. It helps us offset the need for philanthropy, but it still has to make sense. And it's these debates and these questions. And I cannot stress enough, it's not going to be perfect on the outset. No matter how much work we do, we have to continue to revisit and what's happening to the customers. It's a changing market dynamic especially when you're offering a product that you're, again, competing with others, that means you have changing market conditions and what are our expectations? So we continue, I think it has to be an ongoing conversation. Is the customer behavior happening like we think it would? What's the, is there seasonality in our cycle? Is there things that are taking place that impact 
Is our cost of delivery the same that we thought it would be? And I think it's all kinds of questions that need to take place. And I'll share a story. So back in the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, we had an organization come to us who had 800,000 or so in a budget and was primarily funded by one to two foundations and was told by the foundations that they were going to exit the organization in the next two years and wanted them to move on. The CEO of the organization had the idea of a fee-for-service component, and they actually did operate and sell the schools. And could we start to sell the schools? And we sat down and we unpacked it. And a long-term answer was absolutely, there could be a fee-for-service component because she had demonstrated that principals liked their product. It was something that was valuable, but the market timing right? So all of a sudden, if you think about 2008, 2009, well, we're in now tax consequences on the property tax values that we're hitting schools budgets, which means there's not going to be a lot of dollars available for a couple of years to invest in something that's new that hadn't been done. So we explored it and we said, maybe we pause that, but is there something else to your fee-for-service model that we haven't considered with your experience? They were very much a heavy resource model where when they'd go into schools, it would take, they'd have a volunteer opportunity and things like that. So we looked at a revenue model that said, could we have a fee-for-service component that was actually very similar to Habitat for Humanity, where we sell an experience to corporations to engage their employees, provide labor to the nonprofit, but also they would pay for this because it's an experience aspect. Now, she knew that going into that, we have to manage the experience. We have to have it professional. We're going to put a price tag on it. And they started to test that. And they got a huge reception on that fee-for-service component from the corporate community. And it's now a big piece of their revenue model as a whole. I think they're at five or six million. Fast forward a couple of years, they actually then rolled out the fee-for-service component to the school districts and schools themselves, but used a lot of the very same principles that they had tested on selling to the corporations this experience into that. So I share that in the aspect of, again, it's things I think we have to look at. We have to be cognizant of what our customers doing. And as to your point earlier, as you test things, you're going to realize It's not always perfect. The timing isn't always there. And then how do you start to figure out on the activity standpoint, what your sales math is, right? How many calls do I have to make to get an interest, to get an appointment, to get Mm -hmm. to a customer? And it really is a math game when it comes down to that as you start to get into that. But again, this takes time. Yeah. So question for Lizzie, because Lizzie, I know you come from a more traditional nonprofit background. Have you found it to be a challenge to work with nonprofit leaders to help them think in this, maybe not new way, but sort of an alternative way of generating revenue into the organization? No, not challenging because development people are arguably the smartest people on the planet, right? So I, <laughs> it's a biased opinion, but I think that the frame up is that we have to have the right ROI. So the same conversation, I believe, would actually hold true whether we're trying to expand into a new uh, revenue stream from grants or individual giving or earned revenue. It's sort of, what are you built for? What can you sustain? And Brian gets into this really well with um, resource allocation is what are your margins going to be if you're looking at earned revenue and what's going to make sense and what kind of scale would you need to hit and would you need your team to be able to support? I think the biggest maybe challenge ripped is that I feel, and I've seen trying to tinker with these things from an internal role at organizations, it is not as simple as we're just going to layer in a new revenue stream at all. It's really a different skill set. It's a different framework. And there is that market analysis where all of a sudden it's not asking for a donation for the mission that we're going to go achieve. It is asking somebody to buy in for a product or a good, which is inherently just a very different 
structure. And so requires that infinity sales model, if you will, to really dig into what the stickiness of it is going to be and what the ROI is going to be. I think at least from my perspective, the the inarguable perk of a fee-for-service model, having predominantly been in organizations based on contributed revenue is it's going to come in, right? You're not going to be with your hat out all the time. It's going to be this engine that keeps chugging along. And that to me was both internally and now is where I get into that conversation of, yes, it would be great to have that revenue stream coming in that you're not asking the same donors over and over or renewing or And in order to do that effectively, right, what does that require? How much shift will that require of the team structure? Got it. I'm going to get to the questions. I just have two last questions for you, Brian, and then we're going to open it up. So number one, I think sometimes there's some concern that the revenue generating activities and fees will somehow shift the organization or they'll be mission drift or that the tail will be wagging the dog. So can you speak a little bit about that? And then the second question, which is an easy one, is would you be willing to share your framework with the audience? Yeah, well, I'll start with the last one. The, the answer is yes on the framework. And by the way, the sales infinity model, the infinity sales model is, is in development. We started that last year at the request of working with some of our funding partners and nonprofits. And on that note, I mean, we did a research into the for-profit and nonprofit space to look at sales frameworks that exist. And there's not a lot that are that are not compli- really complicated. The best one we could find, I've ran sales forces with literally thousands of agents, and I was confused by them. And when you look at them, and we even look at MBA schools, they don't teach a lot of sales and how to do this. It's just now starting to become an intentionality. So, but maybe happy to share our model, just know that it's a work in development, and we would love feedback to help us get stronger at it. Back to the original question. Tail wagging the dog, or maybe this fee-for-service thing is going to yeah. get us away from the mission. And I think that's a valid question in some organizations. And I think it comes back to, is there line of sight that makes sense, right? And if it does make sense, because in some ways it does, right? So whether it be schools or something else, it does make a lot of sense. And there's somebody who'd be willing to help pay for it to offset the costs. But then again, how does it become an ongoing part of your conversations? And I think this is revenue across the organization. So oftentimes, and and some of this is the dynamics and the power dynamics we see in the sector as a whole of restricted to program. We're mission driven, right? So it's like want to take every dollar and put it into the program that we can. And then we have the old artificial, hey, if you spend more than 20%, you're somehow not effective. I always use the example. Imagine early investors telling Phil Knight, here's some money. You can only use it to make shoes. You can't do any endorsements. You can't do you know make any contracts with people like Michael Jordan, et cetera. I mean, it's absurd some of the things that we do. But I think as we get into revenue, it's the intentionality of how do we develop these strategies as a leadership team, realize it then ties into our overall program and programmatic goals and continuing to revisit, understanding our costs, understanding what we expect, the role of either our fee-for-service component, our salespeople, or what our roles of our fundraisers are, having them have a seat at the table. Oftentimes, whether it be through funders with philanthropy, whether it be a fee-for-service component, they're the ones who are right in the heart of the matter, right? They're talking to the marketplace daily. And what could we have them do to be able to bring that into as we're making programmatic decisions? We can't ignore that no money, no mission, right? That's just a real aspect. And if we can really bring those two together, then it starts to be what trade-offs are there? And we had an organization that we worked with that really struggled with. And I love the CEO's example. She talked about how when she first started having these conversations, it was after they had missed their their fundraising goals and she was the founder. 
and had all this, think of the weight that we oftentimes put on our social entrepreneurs and the founders and they have to be superheroes and go raise this money. And she had missed her, her fundraising goal that year and had to do layoffs for the first time in the history of her organization. And she happened to be going out on maternity leave as well. And I remember talking to her and she said that she really had some dark moments where she thought about leaving the sector as a whole. Because it's all of a sudden this organization that she's birthed is doing great work and they missed their goals. And now she has to come back. And then she came back and she we started having conversations around some of these things that she could learn. It's an ongoing practice, but you have to ingrain it into her culture. And she came up with a phrase that she used with her team, as you said, revenue first, but not only. Right. So we're still a programmatic mission-driven organization, but we've got to be able to tie a line of sight to the revenue. Fundraising, they do have a fee-for-service component too that they're exploring at the time as well, but how do we draw the two together and get the whole organization to see that, right? So yeah. our program team can share stories with our revenue team. So we understand that we have to have the money. It's not an evil four-letter word that we have to talk about, but it's actually a critical component that drives everything. And I think that cultural piece and those conversations to understand that we need to be open to that, to, that unless we can help pay for things, that there's no way for us to have the team, the program, the impact that we want to have. So just ongoing dialogue, ongoing, what is the yeah. market telling us, the funders, the customers, et cetera, is so, so key. Yeah, Brian, I mean, you're singing out of my playbook, which is, I think, as nonprofits, we really have to be explicit and talk about revenue. And I say this again and again, hope is not a strategy, right? You can't just pray that you're gonna, the money's gonna come in. There actually has to be a plan. And I think we also need to divorce ourselves from this assumption that like money is evil and money is bad, right? Money is just a resource that we need in order to do the work. All right, Jenny, you wanna jump in here and ask your question? Sure, hi, thank you so much for organizing this. I mean, I guess I'll skip all the backdrop, but I we have tried in my organization, we support filmmakers with grants and mentorship. We've tried several different models, or at least explored several different models. They never work out because all the time and effort and cost is very little. And we've done the market analysis, looked at other organizations. We get some fees from filmmakers who apply to our open calls. And my team is trying to get me to scratch that $35 application fee, which pays for half of our screening consultants. But recently someone said to me, we have a, our organizations called Chicken and Egg Pictures, and we really are very playful with our brand. We gave out chicken masks to our donors to say thank you. And several times people have said, oh, you should sell merchandise on the site. I know lots of nonprofits who have made lots of money. I have to say it makes my skin crawl a little bit to start considering something like that. And but I'm just curious to see if you've seen any nonprofits that have done that. But otherwise, I'm sort of out of ideas. We even hired a consultant to try and find revenue generating ideas and nothing mission aligned seems to make any sense or any money. I think the point there is if it doesn't make sense. Jenny, then I think you have your answer. And, and, but continue to ask it. You never know if the market changes or something opens up. From a merchandise standpoint, I think there are groups that can do yes if it fits to what they do. They think of arts organizations, theater organizations, that it could make sense to have those things that are a significant revenue portion. I've had other groups that have explored that that were like, wow, we have all these people in our network. There's 8,000 people that support our organization. I'm sure they'd all want to buy a t-shirt. My question is, is, okay, what's the cost to do that? And you're going to manage the inventory. Who's going to wake up thinking about it? And at the end of the day, are you really, what happens if I order too many extra large and I sell a bunch of mediums? 
right? Now I've got all this extra inventory, there's, there's wages and things like that. Or is there a way to partner with a third party that can do on demand? So it's just fractional, but not a real big piece of the revenue strategy. So I think it has to be mission aligned. And then I'm always, it has to be really specific on a merchandise standpoint to make sense. Otherwise it's a nice thought, but something that we could probably, especially now with technology, there's so many storefronts where you could put your logo on things and then they do the one-off screen printing, et cetera, to send a t-shirt the other way. And then you get a small couple dollars off of each one, but that'd be one way to also think about that. Lizzie, did you have something to add here? Just going to add that I have myself tried the the merch route at a couple of organizations. And even when we felt that the t-shirts and tees were flying off of the verbial racks, it never even made its way into a line item on the budget because it just, we were never going to hit scale. And in, in fact, to Brian's point, the inventory and the fulfillment ended up kind of getting in our way. So I would just say that if it's for the sake of trying for earned revenue, that may not be the right decision. But if you can look into a certain amount of profitability and projection that that would make sense to invest in that. It can work. And yeah, that's what I would add. Thank you. All right. Question coming in from Anu. Anu, do you want to ask? Sure. Hi, Brian. And Liz, I was just curious if you could share some lessons learned about common pitfalls on just revenue generation strategy by org stage, what you've seen as common challenges for orgs that are just getting started and testing possible strategies for revenue generation versus organizations that may think, oh, we have our strategy in the bag and we don't have to change it. Just curious what, what you've observed. I know you've worked with hundreds of organizations over the years. Oh, great question. I mean, there's so many. I would say two big ones come to mind for me at first. The first one would be sales cycles, really understanding that our projections, we're excited about it. We're fired up internally. We know our program. We think everybody's going to want this, but being real about what are your customers buying habits and what's the cycles to do so. So again, sticking with schools, is it a district decision? Is it a, is it a principal decision? When do they make those decisions? What are their budgetary cycles? And then being realistic about how long it takes for the buying decision to take place and who's involved. So I think so often when we get excited, we cut those sales cycles really short and anticipate all this revenue coming in because it looks great on a spreadsheet. And actually we need to really look at how long it's going to take for us to do this and what's the venture. And then I think the second thing is probably the most important, the costs. What is it going to cost us to deliver this product or service, right? What is then our cost to deliver that? So what's our cost that we're going to charge? What's our cost to deliver that? What's the Delta? Is there anything that's left over or are we throwing over to our fundraising team a lift because the costs only cover half of what it actually costs us to deliver this, which means every time I sell a $10,000 sale, I'm actually throwing a $5,000 fundraising lift on my team. Well, that has costs of what we're going to have to do on our fundraising teams, but just understanding the cost. And if the product does pay for it, what's the Delta that's left over? So oftentimes when I look at it, I'm, I'll start with, okay, we're going to charge $10 for the service. Or let's just go with $100. It costs me $80 to deliver that product or service, which means I only got $20 left over, right? And now I got to use that $20 for operations, HR, IT, and my sales team. So how do I actually build out a compensation plan that makes sense? Will it pay for itself, et cetera? And so often I think we don't look at the cost of what it's going to cost us to create and deliver this product, and then what impact is that going to have on the organization as a whole, not just on the fee-for-service component, but also on the fundraising component, et cetera. So there's a lot of things, I think, that it starts with understanding the economics and then understanding the customer standpoint, and then starting to make some of those decisions. Those would be two big ones. 
So I have a question that's coming up for me, and Lizzie, I think you'd be a perfect person to answer this question. I've come up through the traditional nonprofit, you know, philanthropic mindset, majoring of fundraising, et cetera. I'm wondering if you could speak to what are the similarities and what are the differences between philanthropic revenue generation versus fee-for-service? Yeah, great question. And there are stark differences. I'd say the the similarities are, I sort of bucket a lot of contributed revenue and relationship management, whether it be individual, board, a grant relationship, what have you. That to me is the sort of common thread and managing those elements, making sure that you have retention and all of that. On the fee-for-service side, it depends on what the model is. So you can have retention, or Brian was saying a little bit ago, you can have the you sell a high-value product, and then you try to have add-ons after, or maybe the goal is that you're going to have sort of the lower-cost items that can tack on after. It, the renewability, it's less of a relationship and more of a transaction and need from the other side. And so I'd say my gut instinct is it's just a different muscle to build that funnel, to build that pipeline, to keep those engines going than traditional contributed revenue. Does that answer that? Yeah, it does. I guess a follow-up question too is what are some things that you've learned in fee-for-service generation that could be helpful to contributed revenue. So one thing, Brian, you said, it's a numbers game, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're doing sales, it literally is, how do you cast a wide net? How are you getting those sales calls or whatever, you know, those sales opportunities? And I think that there might be something there about how we think about fundraising, particularly individual fundraising. So Brian, Lizzie. <laughs> I think it is a numbers game. I think it's knowing who your market is, whether your market is a market of donors or your market is a market of purchasers. I think understanding where the needs are and really digging into that portfolio and that funnel, I think in order to get to a larger pipeline, whether you're doing sales or you're doing development, it really is ensuring that you're investing in the team and the structures internally to be able to support that. And so to me, that's the common thread. It's resource allocation and it's making sure you're not shortchanging the structures up front. And I realize it's a bit of a catch-22. We always face this. It's, you know, well, if we're trying to get the money, we don't yet have the money to pay for the people and the structures and the systems. But if you want to really get that flywheel going, whether it's individual giving or fee-for-service, I would say it's that honest understanding of the investment and the capacity needs of the team. I would add on to that too, some other similarities that I've seen. I have a good friend of mine who's a successful fundraiser. Uh, his name is Jeff Burnt. We were having a conversation one night about fundraisers and then how that did relate to salespeople and how it relates to fee-for-service. And we spent time talking about how Basically, when you look at the skill sets, whether either side of that equation that you're on, we look at three primary things, right? And it's called different things. I use the term cultivators. You're either good at, you have a skill set, you can cultivate relationships, you can just get to know. You can then close, you can ask for the money, you can ask them to buy the product or service, you can ask them to donate, not everybody's comfortable with that. Or stewardship. You're really good at when somebody already is a customer, keeping them engaged, keeping them wanting to come back, be a repeat donor, be a repeat customer. And again, that goes on either side. It is some fundraising or sales. Typically, we're looking at our fundraisers, our salespeople, and we ask them to do all three. And or we're, we're doing an interview, right? And we want them to do all three. And it's kind of like finding a unicorn, right? It's like maybe they can do all three, but what are their strengths? What are they going to gravitate to? What are they like? And understanding then when we're developing out a whether it's fundraising shop or we're, we're developing out a sales fee for service component shop, 
what are the roles that we want our salespeople to do? How are we going to cultivate the leads? How are we going to actually get them to actually get a yes? And then once that customer says yes, back to that customer journey, what's their experience then? Who's responsible for doing that? How do we maybe keep sales involved? Do we want them to own that? Do we want them to then continue to hunters, farmers, entrepreneurs? I've heard those terms as well. Do we want them to continue to hunt for new business? So I think that's one. I think there's a lot of similarities of just thinking about what are the skill sets that the individual is good at? What are we asking them to do? And what's that customer experience of where we want our fundraisers and our salespeople involved? And where do we want to operationalize and have our program and operations teams lean in and help fill some of those? And I think the other aspect that I think is very similar, I've had this conversation with several philanthropists and stuff as well, which is what I would call what type of sale am I making or what type of, of, of ask am I making? What I mean by that, we have a business to consumer transaction, right? So that would be a small donor or a retail type of uh, sale. Pretty quick call. They know what they're looking for. It's, it's an easy. You have a business to business transaction, which I would call a relatively simplistic business to business. Doesn't mean it's simple, but a, it's a shorter sales cycle, less decision makers. It may take two or three meetings. On a sales point, maybe this is something that's $25,000 and under, maybe it's $10,000 and under, maybe on a donation standpoint, this is my $5,000 donors and under. And then you compare that to business to business complex, which would be maybe a more expensive sale. Or when I'm talking to a foundation as a more sophisticated grant cycle, there's multiple decision-making levels. They want to know not only the fundraiser, but they want to know the program they want to talk. So there's just more complexities that go. And again, thinking about your customer, right? Selling to a principal, is going to be more of that B2B simplex. They're probably going to make a decision pretty quickly versus selling to a school district. I've got to get the superintendent involved. I've got to get the board involved, et cetera, to make a decision. So those are the type of things that I think there's parallels and similarities to that we can absolutely learn better ways to approach these. All right. That's very helpful. I think we're going to have time for one more question. We have a really interesting question coming in from Sharon, which is a little bit different than uh, what I thought we were talking about. But Sharon, please feel free to jump in here. Hi there. So I actually worked with Brian about a decade ago, which is how I found out about this seminar today. But I've either worked in nonprofits or for profit for all my life. But right now I'm at a company and we have thousands of frontline employees that make not a lot of money. And so the idea has been swimming around about creating a nonprofit as a separate division that then would help with the communities that these employees serve in and hopefully help with those employees as well. And so I just want to know if you had any advice for somebody who's in this mostly for-profit, but maybe a little bit non-profit in order to try and help out. Sure, it's a great question. No easy answer on that. There's a lot of complexities, I would say, to that. My biggest advice would be, is it starting a new nonprofit or could you partner with the existing community? Because there's so many nonprofits out there that do so much good work. And could we identify really what the objectives are of the organization and to achieve kind of that mission? And is there a way to partner with the existing philanthropic community to do some of what you want to do? Because my guess is if we could help identify some of those parties in whatever regions of the country you're looking at, that you could probably tap into some existing or organizations that are there and help them and help you achieve what you want to do without having to launch a new organization and go through that work because that is not an easy process that can make a lot of sense. No easy answer for me on that, but I would definitely say I'd be willing to have a conversation, but really could we look at the existing organizations that are in the markets that you're looking at, see if we could partner with them. Great. Yeah. I'll float that idea around as well. I don't know if I know we have partnered with some, but it is, we work all over the country. So it's harder to figure out if you pick out two or three, do other people feel left out? So it's, we could probably pick out 50. I mean, who knows? 
Sharon, Brian, I'm just trying to wrap us up here. So Brian, Lizzie, where can we find you online if we want to talk more about this? And where can we get this framework that you've discussed? You can find us at revgen.com. And I'm actually going to spell that because it's a little tricky. R-E-V-J-E-N. Dot com, And we will, Rhea, if it's good by you, so I'm going to get you the framework and our email addresses. I should also note, it was maybe a miss on my part in the beginning. I am New York centric. I'm incredibly biased to New York City and growing this community, but RevGen is not completely biased to New York City. So whether you're listening from New York or elsewhere, we are, we're here for everyone. So you can get through me or through Brian directly, and we're happy to connect further with anyone. Great. So we'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. Any last thoughts as we sign off here? Brian, Lizzie, this has been a great conversation. Send us off with some words of wisdom. I'm excited that people are here. I mean, I think the more we talk about revenue in the space, the more we get both sides of the equation, the funding community, as well as the nonprofit leaders to realize we can learn these things. Right. I talk about RevGen creating on-ramps into learning these, and it, it can be scary, but it's things that everybody's having to do. You're not alone right? Four of the top five challenges that we see are, are revenue related and leadership teams can learn how to do this and do this well, but make it as effective and, and as important as your program because it's an ongoing process, right? And I always say just a thing that'll make it fun. When funders start to have revenue offers, officers, in addition to program officers, we know we've won. <laughs> Lizzie, any, any party things? Just echoing all of that. And also that we are here to solve and help solve some of these big challenges. I'd say my one takeaway is revenue and money should not be icky. It should be something that we can talk about and have structures around. I know Rhea is a huge proponent of this. And so it's platforms like this. Thank you, Rhea. And also just having this larger community of being able to connect and talk and see what we collectively can tackle. So we want to hear from you to know what kind of issues there are out there. And we also want to help sort of foster things like this conversation so that we can all tackle these things together. Great. Thank you so much to both of you. This is very elucidating. Folks, definitely check them out at revgen.com. Lizzie, Brian, we'll put your information in the chat as well so folks know how to get in touch with you. And thank you so much for sharing. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Thank you Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Thank everyone. you for having us. Thank you for being here.